Tim Flannery, welcome back, man. You are, as far as I know, the the first return guest, hopefully of many. And I realize right as I say that, it's a bad look that I don't like have something to tell you about, you know, like this reward for that. But I appreciate you coming back on, man. That's okay. I'll put this on my lifetime accomplishments. Mm. Thanks for having me on. 2X preferred return guest. Be the only one. Uh, big news yesterday, man. We uh, introduced Onboarding Bridge. And for any of the listeners that don't you know, automatically connect the dots here, the first time you were on preferred return was God, probably about two years or so ago, right? Yep. And yep. I think it was early days. It was earlier days than I think I understood at the times, but I now know of pass through. But, um, you know, I think the magic you had reached out, uh, we got to know each other a little bit and I was obsessed with the idea of, you know, investor onboarding. And here we are now two years later or so, and a day removed from Altvia having announced onboarding bridge, which is the formal launch of our integration with pass through. We'll talk all, all about that, but pretty exciting, man. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that uh, the first time we spoke, it was my two co-founders and I with a dream of making it easy for investors to invest. And we knew that it was going to be a part of uh, a a broader way for making it easier to manage investors outside of just things on pass-through. But with Onboarding Bridge, it's it's great to see it realized in in our partnership with Althea. I think that um, for the most part, what onboarding bridge does, what it looks like and stuff is in large part kind of how I imagined it would be two years or so ago, but it's totally different to see it. And of course we're talking about it in a medium that you can't see right now on a podcast. So I'll just go ahead and uh, fill in a few gaps here. The basic gist is that Altvia's CRM aim now has the capability of pre-populating uh, certain parts of the sub doc with information you already have in your CRM that's heavily requested by uh, customers of ours. Also allows the IR user, if you will, to sort of kick off, uh, you know, the, the sub doc process, right? So like, we've done a lot of talking about this over the two years. They're, the IR users working this person through their pipeline. And then this sort of sub doc process creates its own, you know, kind of pipeline, the closing process. And you've heard me refer to it now a million times. So sorry for one more as the pipeline in the pipeline, the bottom of the pipeline, but IR user now is taking them through that pipeline and can now kick that off, maintain the visibility of kind of what's going on. I was thinking a lot about this just by total kind of happenstance the other day. There probably aren't, necessarily a lot of pass-through users that are IR folks or a lot of kind of kicking that process off, but like for not really any good reason, right? It's like the the actual button click sends an email to somebody, right? It could be like this super scary thing. And lawyers are like, well, you know, we got to, but I mean, obviously this is all planned. You know that the sub docs all onboarded with pass-through, everything's good to go. Lawyers have signed off. IR user now can push that button and maintain the visibility of what, you know, uh, what's going on in that little pipeline. So the pipeline now closing. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a process that's existed without technology to support this last mile piece for a while, right? And so the the past state of the world is you had the groups of people that were using Altvia as an investor portal, we're using it as a data room, we're using it as a CRM to manage all these relationships. And that's the way that it was two years ago when we first met. And we also had a group of people that needed to go coordinate around how do I actually handle this problem of, yes, yeah, somebody's coming into the fund, but now I actually have signed documents. I've got completed compliance. I've got all these different things to actually admit them as an investor. And so these two processes were happening, but by actually with onboarding bridge and being able to connect pass through and all data together, we've been able to get the pieces to talk to each other. And so it means greater fidelity of data. It means faster time to close. And I think what everybody's pretty familiar with today is time to close matters because the longer you keep your raise open, the longer that you keep an LP in the wind, anything can happen, anything can happen. And so not only does it give you greater clarity and insight into what's going on with your pipeline, but it also gives you a greater ability to go close it. And so it's, these things have always existed. How do I actually go get somebody to go sign subdocs? How do I manage the relationship that I have with all of my investors? But the simple act of connecting these two means that all of the different teams are all looking at the same set of information, whether they're looking at it in pass-through or they're looking at it in all via so that, okay, let's just close quicker and let's get back to the, let's get back to the job. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's fascinating. We, we literally launched onboarding bridge yesterday and as I sit here, you know, uh, today, day after I actually like inundated with all these new thoughts about it, you know, and, and many of them are not necessarily like, um, you know, things that haven't been thought before, but new angles of it or like new questions I have and probably more importantly, new possibilities that I'm already sort of imagining. Like as you were talking there, I was thinking about how it's probably the case that like when the, the sort of close is centrally managed via pass through by lawyers there. I know the features pass through has for interacting with the LP user are tremendous, right? It's sort of like, Hey, you answered this question wrong. Could you revisit it? I think all that's just awesome. But there's probably still a lot of times where the, let's say that sort of lawyer user, lawyer persona of pass through might go to the relationship manager to ask them to communicate something maybe with the LP or um, maybe not necessarily directly, but they have questions of the sort of IR capital raiser sort of relationship manager user that, 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 you know, maybe sort of, um, cut out just a little bit here, right? Where it's kind of like the IR user now, not only has the visibility, but also has the ability to just sort of shortcut that and be like, yeah, yeah, no, like I'm actually now sort of kind of holding your hand a little bit through through some of the closing process. Anyway, um, interesting that now at the morning after having launched all these things are coming, I think that's good. I think we'll we're bound to come up with some interesting stuff. And it is just the start on that note, right? We we do have um, some other things planned and uh, we aren't a public company, but, and I won't give a safe harbor statement, but we aren't gonna get too much into those things um, just yet. Let's talk, I wanna just hear a little bit more here and for our listeners, what, 
what's going on in Pastor? You guys have grown a ton since we last yeah. talked on the podcast. Yeah. So let's see. When we spoke about two years ago, the the product had been in market for a little bit over a year, and really the first year and change was just bootstrapped with my my partners. Uh, I joined in in May, and then we, we really quickly grew from we had around 10, 15 customers at the time. Around the time when we actually had talked, we probably had closer to 30 and we quickly grew it after that. Today, we've got nearly 400 fund managers as clients and those clients look like you know, your $100 million venture fund to your $300 billion global asset managers and, and everybody in between. And our, our vision from the very beginning was that we wanted to do one thing and do it incredibly well. And, and that was investor onboarding. Be a technology solution that allows you to solve some of the things that you highlighted earlier for these really tricky coordination challenges. Or how do you actually get IR and uh, in IR and front office and fund admin and legal and everybody coordinated around this, this one thing? And we knew that it would happen on pass-through, but we also knew that it existed outside of pass-through. So clearly from then till now, we've made a major investment into our API capabilities. So how can we actually exchange information? How can we chain together events? How can we surface statuses back and forth? And that's the thing that underlays what we're doing with Onboarding Bridge. There's a lot that we've also built around how pass-through is embeddable, how we can automate all of these different things and make it simple so that people can lessen the amount of coordination work that they need to do because it's just bound by software. And so we've grown that business tremendously. And then a little under a year ago, we actually launched our our, our second offering, which is available as a part of our investor onboarding electric, electronic subdoc tool, but also available as a standalone. And that is know your customer and anti-money laundering. And so originally, actually, our, our first, our first uh, iteration of it was a self-service tool. And so what we would do, there, there's a similar problem in KYC AML as there is to uh, subdocs of coordination, of going back and forth iteratively to get the right answers because there's not enough known information up front. And so it tends to fall more on the fund admin than it does on legal, but still I, as an investor, am served a list of KYC AML requirements and I provide information about my trust and I send over a bunch of different documents and the team's going to come back and say, well, thanks for telling me about your five beneficial owners. Now give me information about all five of them. And we just keep going back and forth and back and forth. And it takes me forever as an LP. It's a nightmare of an experience. I have to do this every single time that I invest with a new manager. And we're seeing, by the way, KYC AML requirements are just getting more and more stringent. The SEC actually just issued a risk alert to broker dealers about a week or two ago. Uh, and there's just gonna be more focus on this. It, it's not getting easier. So really difficult for the investors, but then it's difficult for people to actually review everything and then ultimately review sanctions matches, review politically exposed person matches, determine whether or not this investor is appropriate for our fund. Is this the level of risk that we want to be able to take on? So initially we launched a self-service offering and then we launched a full service offering because it turned out even if you were talking to those many, many, many billions of dollars global asset managers, or you were talking to that small venture fund or real estate fund, nobody wants to do the work. So we actually launched a full service offering. People don't want this in-house. It's not core to the way that they make money. It's not core to the anything that they're doing as a firm. And so we'll actually review the matches. We'll review the underlying information and provide a recommendation. That was that was built in large part with our uh, our partner 
Our partners, uh, Julius, who's our chief legal and compliance officer, he is the chief compliance officer at JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, MUFG. He's the head of the SEC Bank uh, Examination Division. And then also uh, our, our PM, Justice, he helped build up Blackstone's AML program. And so we just have a really deep bench on this. But it's taking a similar set of information that we'd had from the subdoc process. It's appending new information. And then it's just repurposing it. And so that's our really key thing is how can we take this investor information, which is kind of like this golden key, and use it to unlock different things for these investors in their transactions. And so, yes, an investor can take information that sits in Aldea and use it in a pre-filled manner to go invest in their first fund on pass-through. Second time they come and pass-through, they have the information from Aldea on there. They also have all of their information that they've had from their previous investments. They can then reuse that across any fund manager that they want. And that extends beyond subdocs into KYC AML. And really the goal is how can we just shrink this transaction time, which in the private markets is days or weeks or, or longer to just minutes. And so if we can do that, that means that all of these people that actually want to invest into the privates, well, it turns out the reason that they can't is many of them from regulatory to whatever, but there's demand on both sides of the market. And without the kind of technology and interactions that, uh, that we're building and, and frankly, that we're facilitating together with Aldea and pass through, it's not going to be possible. And so this is the infrastructure that the markets need to evolve to where they need to get to. Because right now, they're just not ready for it. Yeah. It's amazing. It's a lot. One of the things that occurred to me while you were saying that is that since the last time we spoke, Russia invaded Ukraine and the yep. world proceeded to sanction uh, a whole bunch of Russian uh, bureaucrats. And then also we had, we've, the mark, you know, the markets generally are in a pretty different place than they were two years ago, including having um, had many regional bank failures that are well talked about. So it, it feels like the relevance and the importance of all of what you were just talking about where, where Pastor has made big strides is, uh, I, I don't even know that I, that I had considered how, how relevant that that stuff is against the timeline, but it's pretty significant. Yeah, it definitely pushed us forward on KYC, perhaps a little bit earlier than we wanted. We got pulled into it by a, a number of banks. One of the one of the challenges with that we see a lot in fund formation, whether it's subdocs, whether it is the compliance aspect of it, is there's no one size fits all solutions. There's no standard for how you do KYC AML. There's a set of guidelines for what you're supposed to do, but there's no standard on it. There's no standard for what a subdoc should look like within a given firm, let alone within a jurisdiction. And so what, what we do is we need to make sure that there's custom processes to be able to go meet whatever people's requirements are. But then we're standardizing all the information on the back end so that we can make it interoperable because this is not a world where there is a standard that's going to emerge. This isn't, I'm not the IRS telling everybody that you need to fill out a W8 or W9 that authority doesn't exist on this market. And I, I just don't see it on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And so when you consider how complex the world is today, do you think it's going to simplify or do you think it's going to get more complex? It's only going to get more complex. And so be it KYC, be it the, uh, I mean, the SEC is finalizing comment on what to do for uh, venture firms right now on how private funds should be regulated. The world's only going to get more complex. And so you're going to need these kinds of tools 
to be able to go solve these problems for you because it's not getting easier. And how much can you really solve with headcount? Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, one of the things that's super key to onboarding bridge, as you say that is that like, we don't, you know, we aren't, a lot of this complexity is implied and it's sort of inherent and I'm aware of it. We also don't get into this level that you do because it's like somebody else's problem, right? I mean, in, in this case, it's like the lawyers and the compliance folks from um, the GP or it's your problem to solve and all that stuff. But it becomes our problem for our customers when they need that information, right? So like, and I've, I've described this to you and to many people many times. And again, it's this visual thing in a sort of audio format, but this sort of cycle of the information, right? It's like a just a traditional circle. You get the information from the LP when they come into your fund, you know, you check it, all that, you reconcile it. And then a lot, so a lot of that information now is relevant to the ongoing management of that relationship for seven to 20 years um, until you come back around in one, two, three years later, and it's time to do it all over again. And, you know, certain things have changed. Now for us, like being focused on managing the, the relationship with LPs, obviously to your point, you have to know the investing entities and you have to know that they're not on sanction lists and all those sorts of things. So, you know, that's somebody else's problem. Pastors solving that problem. It's lawyer problem, all that stuff. Um, what our users need is like, okay, well, how are we going to, you know, communicate with these folks, right? We, Alvia provides a suite of tools that, that helps you manage that relationship by automating some of the communications, the issuance of capital calls, distribution notices, um, delivery of all sorts of documents, delivery of data inside of a portal, all that uh, relationship management stuff. Um, knowing who to send the capital call out to is oftentimes like something that's asked for, you know, in the, um, the sub doc. So you get that and then it starts changing and all that stuff over, you know, years, like maybe some people at these institutions leave and others take their spots. So you need to add them to start receiving, you know, quarterly reports and things like that. But then like a year or two later th comes around and, it's time to raise again and knowing, you know, who the entities, who the relationships are to be talking to in terms of people and then starting the closing process again, you know, that's this circle right now you're right back. But, but the thing that's kind of shifting all throughout that um, cycle is the information and, and it's, it's a little partitioned inherently because of the sort of, groups of folks here, onboarding bridge brings that together um, into a single place, makes it, you know, easy for the relationship managers to, to have it, to reuse it, to have visibility, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, I guess the other major thing that I'm sort of thinking about here in that life cycle is the other part, <clears throat> excuse me, of pass throughs vision, which I've been fascinated all along. You guys also by, uh, on your own by yourselves, um, make information reusable across sub docs by, uh, 
investing entities. And, and so that to be super clear is like, if I am the head of, you know, a family office and I'm the one that fills out the sub docs, um, I fill them out on pass through for, cause I'm committing to so-and-so GP and then, which is a pass through customer do that on pass through. And then I come and, you know, I don't know it, but it turns out some other GP that we're committing to also uses pass through. And now I, I actually can, can reuse a lot of that sort of very detailed stuff about the investing entity. Um, and I don't have to necessarily go back and fill that out. So that's a huge benefit to the user, obviously. It's a huge benefit to the GP. It's a huge benefit to maintaining like the sort of data integrity throughout this um, cycle that I'm talking about. And I think that while it's a practical feature and it's helpful and all that, the vision behind it is also one that I'm fascinated by. I think there's a couple things happening. Um, so let's start on the investor who actually comes into multiple funds. And so we touched on this a little bit earlier. There's no standard for what a sub doc should look like. There's no standard for how a question should be asked. And so one of the things that you pay your lawyer to do is to help you understand uh, your fund, its risks in relation to the current regulations in your industry. And so they've written out a subscription document. They've written out all the other governing documents of your firm, of your fund, and uh, it's based on their interpretation of it. And their interpretation, everybody, look, their interpretation is going to be a little bit different from somebody else's interpretation, but it's all got the same rules because it's all got the same rules. Everybody's looking for the same answers, but there's different ways that they want to cover it. And so the first fund manager that you invest in asks you a question like, what's the investor's name? All right, great, easy. Second fund manager that you invest in says, what's the subscriber's name? They just use different terminology. There's different answers that they're trying to get to at the bottom of this. And so, yes, you can help investors reuse information when the same questions are asked. That, that's really easy. The tricky thing that we're solving is, how do you help investors reuse information when there's different questions that are being asked? And so when I talked earlier about like our golden key, the thing that really matters to us is this investor identity information we can help tag all these different answers so that they're reusable no matter how the question's asked. So it doesn't matter if somebody's using the same council or a different council from one fund manager to the next. And I think that's why LPs love us, that and the user experience. We've got a 96% uh, approval rate and satisfaction rating from our investors. And it turns out 4% of LPs just don't like setbacks. Okay, there's only so much I can do. But, <laughs> Like it, it, so that that's really the key thing that we're, we're doing on it. The other thing that I think is happening is I mean, you talked about Altvia is really focused on the investor relationship. And so, you know, in, in the world 15 years ago, 20 years ago, the investor relationship was still a part of software. It was a part of a broader stack of software, though. And so that investor relationship was captured somewhere next to a general ledger. It was captured somewhere next to uh, it was somewhere next to portfolio level reporting and portfolio monitoring. And today, now it's captured next to investor onboarding, like we're doing today. And so we've we've lived in this world where everything is all integrated together directly. It's vertically integrated, and it actually reminds me a lot of computers in the in the 1980s and, and 1990s. This is a little. This might feel a little strange to try to tie like private equity software to like what IBM was doing. In the I'm 80s. here for it. Yeah. I'm, I live but, for analogies, yeah. metaphors. Let's go. If you wanted to go buy a computer in the eighties, you'd buy it from IBM. It was their retail channel. It would be 
their operating system. It would be their applications on their chips, on their computers. And it was awesome for IBM. It was pretty bad for customers though. Mm -hmm. And so a couple of things happened. Customers would get locked into deals. If they had a application that they wanted that didn't work on that OS, then okay, you're out of luck. You either had to rip everything else out or else you just had to make do without. And so uh, as the industry got more and more sophisticated, as there was more and more demands on it, we moved into a world where people went from being generalists that did everything to they became specialists and all the information became standardized and interoperable. And all the pieces became plug and play. So you could buy a computer from whoever you wanted. You could use Windows, you could use Mac. You can get uh, Excel on any of them. You can choose your chip. You can get whatever. And so that's the way the world worked in computers and the same thing's happening now. And so everybody that did all the different pieces of what you do and what we do and what everybody, everybody's been doing it together in one spot. I, I think the way the world is moving is actually you can choose the best relationship management tool and you can choose the best way to go onboard investors. And the key thing that you need to think about is what is the investor experience that you want? What's your internal teams experience that you want? And it doesn't matter what tools you choose because there's going to be winners in each of these spaces. And it's about how the information just moves back and forth across them. Mm -hmm. And so into this horizontally integrated space instead where, yeah, like, great, you need to make the information reusable. But, but what I think we're both leaning into is, okay, sure, we want to make sure that all these, uh, all these things are connected, but you want to build the best piece of relationship management software, and I want to build the best way to onboard investors. And it's incumbent upon both of us to make sure that our solutions talk to each other. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the practical impact is that, you know, I was having this conversation uh, the other day, different form with a customer and, you know, it like the practical impact of that sort of vertical integration is that uh, at least somebody, if not many people across many groups end up on the margin and because of the user experience or the functionality or, or whatever it may be. And then that becomes this sort of dark spot, you know, where it's like, oh, well, you know, it, so if we were to actually continue the sort of visual of a circle or a cycle of some sort, you actually lose connectivity because people are like, I, I, things unusable. I can't, you know, I can't yeah. use that to do my job. And so somebody, you know, basically goes offline and the information is no longer um, flowing as a result. And so that's important. You know, I mean, I think that this idea that, oh, it just, we do it all. Uh, that's like this big red flag, you know, it, it ought to be because what it really says is there's stuff we do really well. And then there's stuff we don't. And when there is this option as an alternative to have, you know, kind of best of breed, like the horizontal approach you're describing, I think that's uh, offers very practical um, benefits. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. Pass through, done a lot, winning awards. Very proud of you guys, all those things. But um, also becoming a sort of thought leader in fundraising, and logically so. It's almost like a proxy, right? I mean, uh, you're growing so much that you couldn't take absolute data, but in a way, the sub docs and the completion of them at some point can be normalized as a proxy for fundraising activity. So um, you guys just published a thought leadership piece on the state of fundraising. And I uh, want to hear what some of the conclusions were. Well, 
I know what they are because I've read it and we've talked about it, but I want you to describe to some others what what some of the conclusions and takeaways there were. What's going on in the fundraising market? So we went out and we ran the state of the fundraising survey for the first time and it's something that we're continue continuing to do annually. And the the results were in some ways really not surprising because when you ask fund managers, is it easy or is it hard to raise right now? Four out of five say it's really hard to raise. Okay, great. That meets the narrative. But when you asked them, were they going to hit their fundraising target? Somehow, four out of five also thought they were going to go hit their fundraising targets. And so I'm trying to square that circle and understand why that's the case. So first of all, the majority of fund managers believe that the macro environment is going to get better in the next 12 months. It's about 70% of them. But perhaps it's hubris or perhaps it's scrappiness or whatever it might be. We're also seeing that there's way more creativity from these fund managers for how they're actually attracting LPs. So first of all, you're seeing managers going to new regions for the first time. You're seeing them reevaluate their placement agent strategy. So maybe adding the first one or maybe adding somebody with a specific strategic focus. And essentially everybody is taking a look at how do we go change? This probably does mean a change to my investor composition. And so, great. Everybody's pulling out all the stops. One of the, we asked a question that when we initially designed the survey, I was like, I don't know, should we actually include this question or not? And it was about fund managers adopting AI for their fundraising efforts. Hmm. And it turns out they are. I, I was actually really surprised by the outcome on this. I, I knew that we experimented with it. And I know that when I talked to uh, other companies and, and uh, other executive teams, like everybody's experimenting within their business. But traditionally, what I've seen with fund managers is, is they can sometimes be laggards. The things that they expect the portfolio companies to do from a technology perspective, it doesn't mean that they're immediately ready to go do that uh, for their own firm. But with AI, that's proven not to be the case. About 50% of fund managers were using AI to do data-driven analytics. They were using it for operational due diligence, outreach, and building pitch books. And that's 50% for each of them. And so cumulatively, the, the effect is going to be greater than that. And so when we talk to them, it doesn't sound like it's become something that's um, something that today is an integral part to their process. It sounds like it's a little bit more of an experimentation. And my experience matches that too. Like how, how do we use AI today? We don't use it to go create finished products, but we use it as kind of a creative partner. How can we go develop some of the, the content? But we talk to people, they're using it to find lookalike investors. They're using it to uh, take the thesis, take the deck, take the whatever, and figure out how to go uh, customize it at some scale to this audience. Like they're doing these things that give them just these little bits and pieces of leverage. And so, you know, what's the actual impact of that? I'm, I'm not sure yet. The, so one thing is maybe it means I can reduce my headcount, but if I can reduce my headcount by like one or two people, or even if I can reduce it by like some percent in a certain department, is that really going to have an impact on my on my fund, on my firm, it's going to be at the margins. And so I, I think the interesting opportunity on AI is going to be, okay, how can I actually use it to get better returns, which our survey did not look at, but also how can I use it to find new pools of capital? Because ultimately like, that's, that's one of the big things right now. Everybody is looking for pools of capital in the like constantly shifting market between GPs of power and LPs of power today, LPs of power. It, it's a buyer's market. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm just going to out save on headcount everybody else. 
said yeah. no private equity firm ever, right? I mean, like manufacturing at like global scale, sure. Those are things to look to to improve margins. But uh, yeah, you know, I think the most helpful thing I've heard um, a couple of weeks back on, I think it was like a CNBC interview or something about AI was, it was very pragmatic uh, way to profile it, which was like, think about it as something that um, it, it matches up with the qualifications of like a junior professional of some sort, like, could you hand it like a 50 page report and be like, can you summarize this for me? You know? Uh, yeah. Like AI is going to be really good at, at that. Um, you know, could you go out and find something that, you know, like a, a junior professional of some sort would need a lot of guidance for, you know, that's like this frontier that's different, right? It's like, go find a pony in a data set with very little guidance. I think that, what everybody's so excited about is there's no question that that is on the horizon as a possibility. It's, it's just, you know, is it, is it there yet? I love that people are thinking about that. Right. I mean, I think that that's sort of early cycles like this. Where are those opportunities? There are people doing that as well. Right. It might not be quite as mainstream yeah. as the, um, do you remember when, when we were working on kind of preparing for the onboarding bridge launch, you asked chat GPT to write a poem describing the alt via pass through uh integration and that was a moment there were you know i have maybe five moments where i was where like light bulbs went off as it relates to the current state of ai that was one of the five that was um a cute little thing so yeah super interesting um i want to talk too just uh quickly on the kind of theme of what's going on in the market so in i guess it was april um you and me and a crew of folks from Alvia attended and sponsored, co-sponsored uh, uh, IR and fundraising professionals event put on by PEI. Great event in New York. Uh, there's one coming up in San Francisco uh, in September. We'll be at that one together as well with Pass Through. Um, but um, going back to this New York one, so, you know, uh, great stuff, right? I think you and I, we've talked a lot about this and we won't bore the listener with, with all the details, but <clears throat> the story that, that I've told many times, I think is relevant here is that one of the sessions, well, well, first off the, the conference overall to me was like, wow, investor onboarding is like the, you know, new cool kid. Like it's like the hot topic at this event, right? I've been to this event 10, 12 years now. And, you know, um, there were, by the way, five or six years early on where like data and technology were never mentioned really, you know, uh, at all. And then all of a sudden the keynote was on data and it was like, well, and now, you know, a couple of years later, like investor onboarding is like the hot topic. Anyway, there's a whole breakout session, an hour long on this topic. You and I step into it as listeners just to observe. And um, fascinating. So pass through came up among, you know, some of your peers in the onboarding space in the conversation just sort of organically and i think for the most part everybody was like yeah investor onboarding is great like the electronic sub docs all that stuff's really awesome everybody's super pleased with it and then but it just sort of felt like there was like something that was kind of left to be desired and i didn't totally know like reading the room what, exactly what that was and i think you know maybe as as we were standing up to leave that session somebody just sort of blurted out like this light bulb moment where it was like, yeah, I guess the thing that is sort of left to be desired is 
like, how do we get that stuff in and out of our CRM? You know, it was sort of like yep. this, it was almost like this onboarding thing is happening in a vacuum. And we were sitting in a room full of, you know, relationship managers who have like a sort of degree of separation from onboarding experience themselves hear that it's great. Everybody loves it, but we're almost literally sort of like thinking out loud, but, but like, how do we get, you know, take advantage of that or solve the problem we have today of like manual back and forth in and out from CRM to onboarding and then back out. And I was left with no choice, <clears throat> but to be shameless and say, Oh, by the way, you know, we, uh, we're just about to announce this, or we did just announce it. Um, at that time that that we were working on the integration, we've now as of yesterday announced that is live and, and ready for people and customers have been using it. So, so that, that was this really cool moment. I've told that story, I can see that you're um, it brings you joy to, to recall that moment too. But I think like, in, in we, as we talk about the state of fundraising, that, that event was big on onboarding. It was big on communications and marketing yeah. and all those things. And so I think these are all the, the result of the point you made, which is it's a buyer's market right now. And, and GPs are, um, yes, being forced to, I think that's okay to say, but, but even if they aren't, they're being proactive about like finding ways to go be smart, be strategic, find ways to build relationships, find partners that, that maybe others aren't and use technology to their advantage. And it was front and center at that event. It was really cool to see that. I, I agree. So there's a, I also agree that, uh, it did bring a smile to my face thinking about it because you and I were sitting next to each other, looking at each other saying, is somebody yeah, going to say, say something? <laughs> you very quickly stood up and said something. And I was uh, very happy for that. So I don't know, like the, there's always changing dynamics with LPs on economics. In some cases, everybody has demand to get into certain funds. In other cases, uh, everybody's trying to convince LPs. Here's how, here's how and why you should allocate part of your, 2023, 2024 number to us. So look, that's always going to be in flux. What, what that highlighted to me, and I think it's just a general trend I've seen in this space though, is the, the relationship between fund managers and LPs is just changing right now. It's just fundamentally changing. And so one of the, the areas that you and I are, are both maniacally focused on is the digital experience, right? You're seeing fund managers for the first time actually trying to understand what are all of the different touch points that I have with my investors? How can I track them? How can I make sure that when they're actually working with my fund and interfacing with it online, that it's a positive experience? How are they accessing subdocs and KYC and not? Sure. Okay, great. How are they accessing documents? How are they accessing data? How are they analyzing it? How are they doing whatever? Because we know that, sure, you, you can have all these bits and pieces and they can be effective, but if it doesn't look right, it doesn't look right. And so, you know, an analogy on this would be, uh, I take my car into the shop, the mechanic fixes it, and he leaves a grease spot on me somewhere. I see that grease spot and all I can think about is that grease spot. I'm not thinking about is my car actually in good shape or not, I'm thinking about a grease spot. And so it's time for like fund managers we're seeing are actually paying attention to what are all the different ways that I can interact with my LPs. And so, great, that's the digital experience. And again, I think it's, that's why we exist. The, the other thing though, and it, what really struck me was the, the changes around communication and brand building. 
So on communication, communication's always been something that's helped firms stand out. Yeah, you need to have great results, but you need to actually be able to build trust with your investors. And those kinds of things happen in the moment. So like you brought up the regional banking crisis earlier. When SVB was having its weekend, you had fund managers that everybody was trying to figure out, okay, what am I supposed to go do in this moment? And then you had fund managers that were saying, okay, what's my exact exposure? What's the exact exposure of everybody in my portfolio? How can I communicate to my LPs what I know and what I don't know and let them know when they'll hear the next update from me so they're not just left in the dark? And from those LPs that have a portfolio of fund managers, you can bet that they had a variety of uh, variety of experience with those fund managers for people who were willing to communicate and people who weren't. And so people who are actually willing to prioritize, yes, like we, we are going to actively communicate with our investors. We're going to take time and understand, yes, this is a sales process. This is a relationship. Yes, I need to provide you investment returns, but it really is about this like give and take that we have that happens moment to moment. Those are people that are in really good shape today, and it's not too late for people to do that now. But the other thing that, that was a, a really big takeaway for me, and I still think it's fresh, even though this happened in, uh, a few months ago, is the amount of people that are actually spending time investing into their brand right now. Because just the composition of who's in the private markets is changing today. It's been so niche, it's been so alternative, and now it's becoming more mainstream because retail wants to come in and fund managers want to bring retail in. And look, all the bits and pieces are breaking. And that's, again, why we exist and why things like our, uh, our integrations are, are so important for those firms so that we can actually facilitate that. But just the way that you distribute to them is totally different. They don't find out about you through a placement agent. That doesn't make sense. The way that they find out about you is through your brand. And so you're seeing whether it's the Blackstones of the world and the Apollos and everybody else investing all of these things and how can we go build brands, be it through RIAs, be it directly to retail, to how do I express my thought leadership then? How do I put us out in the market? How can people spend their time learning about us before they even talk to us? And if you take a look at, you know, who are the firms that you can think of in private equity today? I saw a word cloud and some, I think, a Bain report. And the, the number one report was, I don't know. <laughs> so like people, there's this major opportunity to go develop brand today. And we're seeing people that are, are really focusing on it. And then there's going to be some fast follows. And then there's going to be people that choose to ignore it. And some of them will do it because they're happy and satisfied with what they have. Some of them are going to get left behind in the dust. And so the market is shifting. Like in the public markets, it's an even split between institutional capital and retail capital. That's not the case today in alternatives. And it's starting to shift in that direction. And so if that's the case, and like what are fund managers going to do given that information? And I don't think that uh, I don't think that's, that, that's really settled in for a lot of managers today. Mm -hmm. It's happening. I, I think that everybody's learning on the job. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's funny you say that. I think there maybe two or three features we've recently released that were like the direct result of a flood of people who came to us saying like, help us say something about this, <laughs> you know? And, and it was like, there's people who can, so we can help people say something and we can help people figure out what to say. And the people that are well equipped to say something meaningful and to say it fast in these situations, um, like, like there's a big signal in that, 
you know, it means that they've got a lot, they've put a lot of work into that. I mean, I think about like the COVID emails or like our response to COVID-19, like three, four years ago, it was like, there was this point where it was like, well, everyone else is, I guess we have to, but it yeah. was like, let's copy the last one that we got from somebody, you know, I, like I was getting these emails from the funniest people, you know, I was like, I just don't care, but I guess like, thank you. And so it, it, what's implied in that is that you, you sort of had to send one. There was a signal or an implied signal in where you were, were you early, were you late? But then there was also just like, who cares? You know, you, you actually would have prevented a bad signal being late uh, if you hadn't sent the email when the content of the email is meaningless. It's like, I do not care what your response is to COVID-19. <laughs> But thank you for sending this because now I know you're like the last one six months later and that you've spent six months trying to figure out how to communicate with your customers. You know, so it's embarrassing. You you and I have both spent some both spent some time in 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 selling our wares, selling our products. And so you know that when you are in a sales cycle with a prospect, that you want to be responsive to their emails. You want to over communicate. You want to actually understand what their problems are and be able to talk to them and talk about how you're solving it and be honest about where you're not solving it and, and everything else. Fundraising and investor management is just the same. Thing. Yeah. And so like when you're, when you're talking to investors as a part of a fundraising process, yeah, be on top of their requests, be responsive to when they have operational due diligence requests that come out. Okay, cool. Just show that and then show that throughout their time with you. And so, yeah, you, you have to be thoughtful. If you sent, if you sent somebody a useless message message that was wasting their time during a sales cycle, they're going to be like, Oh, okay. Like this is what this person's going to do then when I invest. Mm -hmm. And so you set the tone early and you set the tone thoughtfully. Like who are, who are all the different groups of people that are here? What do they care about? How can I track that? How can I actually then manage my communication strategy effectively and not just blow my credibility? Yeah. Because ultimately, like you, you build this reputation, you build this brand through a combination of like the actions that you have directly with your investors, customers, whatever it might be. But then you also do it in this like megaphone way through your brand, through everything else that you're doing. And frankly, that's that's really important today. Uh, the the exact stat escapes me, but something like eighty percent of the research that B two B buyers do on. Uh, vendors today is, is done before they even meet the company. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. And so too. Yeah. That's, the same thing for, that's the same thing for investing. Like, it, yes, you're going to still have to go through some type of diligence. Yes. You're still going to have to do some kind of reporting uh, and like regulatory disclosures. And yes, you're going to have to do all this stuff, but people are getting to know you and getting to build trust with you through your day-to-day -day interactions and your ability to actually uh, have those interactions match them where they are and through the ways that they learn about you without you being in the room. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's funny you draw that parallel because I do it all the time and I, I use the word customer because I, I use it in the context of like telling people they need to think about their investor experience as a customer experience. And sometimes you could clearly see or hear or people even just explicitly say that makes them uncomfortable to talk about their investors as customers, right? It's like we prefer investors or partners or clients and and <clears throat> excuse me 
the thing that I say to that is like, then it's even more important for you to think about, like, like, I don't care what the semantics are, the terminology, the point is, if people are putting this much in this thought, and this much investment into creating an experience for customers, and billion dollar companies are being created to create, you know, uh, offer services and products to help with that. Um, you know, then it's even more important if you think that the term you use is reflects more sort of prestige, I suppose, the customer does by using client, partner, investor, then you should probably, you know, take the point and multiply it a little bit. And it's even more important for you, you know, and I think that's um, super huge. Well, listen, man, this is awesome. You know, I could sit here and, and talk and we often do just don't record it for everybody else. Um, super thrilled to have um, told the world about onboarding bridge. In fact, I've just been made aware as we sat here and talked for 45 minutes or so, all sorts of uh, responses from pe people I know, people I don't, questions, interests, super cool to see that. And I think it, you know, it's, it's been a lot of work, a lot of, you know, vision, all the things and uh, just very grateful, very proud. And, you know, want to shout out to you and the folks that passed through a lot of people uh, took a lot of people and a lot of work to make this possible. But uh, at the sort of foundation of it all is, you know, a bunch of love, a big family, you know, two companies that, enjoy working together, have similar vision. Um, and so anyway, so thank you for that and, and look forward to kind of continuing that. I, I'll, I'll use the word family because I think it's appropriate, but I've also, you know, gotten to know your family as well. So tell your lovely wife, Meg, hello for me. But uh, yeah, just, just a super exciting time and can't wait to keep going here. And we'll, you maybe, well, you'll probably be the, the third, the first third time preferred return and then you get like a maybe a silver badge or something and we'll, we'll create a awards program you'll start getting double points at some point but uh just super fun story uh super serendipitous that we're sitting here now two years later doing it again and still not done man it's exciting yeah it, jeff can i leave you with you mentioned earlier the chat gpt poem so i actually was able to find yes the poem. yes please so it wasn't a poem. Uh, I asked ChatGPT to announce a partnership between Passthrough and Altvia in the style of Ernest Hemingway. Right. Yes. So ChatGPT said, Passthrough and Altvia have forged a bond, a partnership of the strongest kind. Together, they will traverse the winding paths of private markets, each bringing their unique strengths to the table. Passthrough, with its deft ability to navigate regulatory hurdles, will guide the way. Altvia, with its keen sense of strategy and innovation, will lead the charge. This partnership promises to be a true force to be reckoned with in the world of private markets. Mm, love it. So fitting. The regular listeners of the podcast will know that I make all of the music originally. You asked me what I was going to record for you, and I am left with no choice but to think that we might just have the first original song with lyrics uh, <laughs> for Preferred Return. and. Those would certainly have to be them in this case. That's awesome. And I appreciate you uh, pulling that back up. Love it just as much and totally fitting. So thank you, man. Appreciate you coming back on. Appreciate working with you and uh, keeping at it as well. 